This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, Haley mentioned those two prayer meetings. And um, at the prayer meetings, we pray for these prayer requests that are right here um, in your bulletin in that insert. So if you want to tear that off and fill that out, you can put that in those baskets as, um, as you come up to take communion. And um, the baskets that are in front of the bread baskets, they're the round ones. Or if you'd rather, you can just uh, do it by phone. And the way you do that is you... Um, Simply go to our website, which is uh, salempressws.org. Salem, and then T-R-S, T-R-E-S, and then W-S.org. And then when you get there, you type in community of the three options, worship, community, outreach, community, and then you hit prayer, and then there's a place for a prayer request. So um, 
I'm gonna go ahead and do that while you do. And even if you're not sure exactly um, whether this works or not, whether prayer works or whether God listens, um, it cannot hurt to fill out a prayer request. This is one of the parts of the service um, where you're most involved. So I would encourage you to do that. And we love to have tons of prayer requests. So um, again, like Haley said, all are welcome to come to pray. All right, so I just filled mine out. And uh, go ahead and fill out yours. And um, we are looking at the book of Romans, obviously. And we're in the hardest part, which is chapters 9 through 11. And um, chapters 9 through 11 are all about Paul's agony about his own people. Paul was Jewish. You might not have known that, but he was. Um, every writer of the New Testament is Jewish, by the way, so it's not an anti-Semitic document, in case you've ever heard that. Paul was Jewish, and he was uh, devastated by the fact that many, many Jewish people of the first century did not follow uh, Jesus. They did not believe he was the Messiah, and, and Paul just agonized over that. And so in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is um, just kind of pulling his hair out about what is going on with Israel. Uh, this amazing gospel has come through Jesus, and then why are they not believing? Um, and you see um, in verse 3, uh, this wasn't read um, today, but I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, just listen to the agony in Paul's heart when he says this. This is in Romans 9, 3. He says, My people, my Jewish brothers and sisters, for them I would be willing to be forever cursed. I would be willing to be cut off from Christ if that would save them. I mean, you know how close he was to, to Christ, and so that just tells you how much he wanted uh, his fellow Jewish people to believe. But he was not angry with them. Uh, he was never angry. Even though they... Uh, he, he did not um, fare well at the hands of his Jewish brothers and sisters. When he would go around the ancient uh, world and preach in the synagogues, many times he was, um, he was flogged and whipped and beaten, um, almost to the point of death at times. And yet he, he remained uh, steadfast without anger. Um, he sympathized with them completely because he himself had uh, persecuted uh, Jesus and his followers to the point of killing them. So Paul did not have any judgment whatsoever, um, thinking he was superior to them. Um, but he also knew why he and they, and possibly you, uh, would reject the grace of God. He knew deep in his heart what it was that causes a person to reject the grace of God. And by the way, it's, it's not often uh, immorality. Uh, it's not things like uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Those are not often the things uh, that cause people to reject Christ. Much more often, and this is kind of scary for a group of people like us who strive to be uh, good citizens, probably. Um, what's scary is in verse 31, he says, the reason that they rejected God's grace in Christ, the Jews, that is, and the reason that he had rejected it is because they had tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law. I mean, that's quite a statement there, that the reason that we are opposed to the grace of God is because we want to earn right standing before God. In other words, we want to justify ourselves rather than letting him justify us. And Paul in Philippians 3, 4 talks about how much he himself was striving for justification. And he boasts in his former resume. He says, I was circumcised of the eighth day 
I was from the nation of Israel. I was from the tribe of Benjamin, the greatest tribe in Israel. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was even a Pharisee. So he's saying I was from, I had a great family pedigree. I was from a noble line. I was very religious. I was very devout. I had achieved great academic things. I was a Pharisee trained by the rabbi um, Gamaliel. I had these impressive vocational accomplishments. That might be you as well. And Paul would say that's the reason that you're most likely uh, to reject grace, to stumble over the rock, as he puts it, of grace. So I want to look at those two things simply. The, um, this idea of self-justification, which is one of your biggest problems in your life. And you might not know that, but it is. The, the energy that you have, the rage in a way, the rage for self-justification is there. And I'll try to show you that it's there. So that's the first thing. And then the only way to get rid of that is when you are melted by grace. And I can tell you this happens, you know, this is not just like you're always in one state or the other. Um, we're always kind of hardening our hearts with self-justification, and then God will soften our hearts and melt them by grace. And then we'll harden them again, and he melts them again. And life is just this, if you're a Christian, that's what's always happening. If you're melting down again. So those two things, self-justification and then grace. So first of all, look in verse 32. And again, he is trying to understand the mindset of somebody that would reject pure, free grace from Jesus. And he says that trying, to get, trying hard to get right with God by keeping the law, instead of by trusting in him, they stumbled over the great rock in their path. That's an interesting metaphor of a great rock. Um, they stumbled over the, this great rock. Um, I, the, the, the great rock is kind of like a little crack when you're jogging. So if you're jogging down the road um, and you, I've hit, I've hit a crack before, um, I didn't see it there, and it causes you to trip. You know, if you think, if you think of um, jogging, like if you're a, a big runner, if you think of that as a, as a metaphor for striving to make yourself right with God, then the, the, the stone or the rock is that thing that you hit, that grace that you hit, and it makes you, it trips you up. It causes you to stumble because you're not used to grace. And you're kind of trying, you're like a person with a bad exercise addiction. You're, you're running, you know, maniacally with, with your Nike gear on, you know, just do it. I can do it. I'm going to make myself fit and in shape. And then all of a sudden you hit that great rock. You hit that crack and you stumble and you fall on your face. That's what Paul's talking about. They're trying so hard to get right with God, they stumbled over this rock in their path. And he says in verse 31 that they, they never succeeded. They tried so hard to get right with God, and they, they never succeeded. Uh, because, you know, we have this desperate desire to impress other people, and it never succeeds. You could get as much affirmation as you want from other people, and it will not succeed. It's like a bucket with a big hole in it. It just leaks out. Um, we try to get all these things done. We try to impress ourselves. It doesn't work. I mean, have you ever come to the end of a day and you, you didn't get much done at all and you just felt horrible about yourself? You know, you try to get all these plans and you didn't get anything done and you said, I didn't get anything done today and you feel horrible about yourself. And every day you wake up again and you've got to do it again. You've got to, you've got to feel good about yourself by getting these things done. There's a um, writer named Lori Penny and she wrote an article for Wired magazine back in April right when... COVID started, and she said, uh, the title of the article is, Productivity is Not Working. 
you remember those first few weeks of COVID or even months, uh, nobody was getting anything done. So this is what she says. It's a really long article. I would really recommend the whole article, but this is a quote from it. It's called Productivity is Not Working. It was in April Wired magazine um, by Lori Penny. She says, I am a precarious millennial who for the past 10 years has answered every cautious inquiry about my well-being with a long rundown of how much work I got done that day. Have you ever done that before? Somebody asks you how you're doing, you know, how are you, and you start talking about all the things you've done that day. That's probably not what they were looking for, but that's how we, that's how we roll. We go, we go through our day. Of what we, and so she says, when the coronavirus crisis began, I started writing myself ambitious to-do lists on giant sticky notes. I don't know if any of you did that, but uh, Lori Penny did that. She took out these giant sticky notes, write down all the, I'm gonna clean out my attic, I'm gonna weed the yard, I'm gonna pressure wash my deck, you know, all these things. You probably had some list like that. And then she said, but at some point in the middle of the pandemic, my faith and my striving began to be shaken. And I don't know, where you are with all that, uh, a lot of you are back in school and you might be feeling good about yourselves again, but you should ask yourself, has your faith in your striving been shaken a little bit by coronavirus? I think it was a good opportunity for it to be shaken. I think it's a good thing for it to be shaken. And one fourth of young adults, uh, they say, I heard this um, on NPR, I believe it was NPR. One fourth of young adults have contemplated suicide in some point in the middle of the coronavirus. That's 18 to 25. These are young people that you don't expect that from. And I think that shows that some, there's something that's being shaken um, in people's faith and their productivity. Because uh, self-justification is a brutal taskmaster. Self-justification will not leave you alone. You can never get enough done at the end of the day. It's like a terrible, terrible boss that is always yelling at you, no matter what you did. You can't do anything right. You're never, never satisfied with your performance. That's what self-justification is in your head, like a person just always goading you forward. You might think that if you did um, this great thing, I don't know, if you got into Harvard med school or something like, or you, you, know, you, you, you became a CEO, or you became a sports star, that, or an entertainment, he, you know, guru, one of the greatest of all time. You would think that if you did something great like that, then that would put to rest your need for striving for self-justification. But listen to what these two people who are at the very top of their game said. This is pretty amazing. One of them is Madonna. You've probably all heard of Madonna. At one point, she was the best-selling female recording artist of all time. I don't know if she is anymore. Potentially, she lost that title. But Madonna said... My whole drive in life comes from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And you know, if you've watched her career at all, you, know, you notice that that has not been in any way satisfied by what she's done. This horrible fear of being mediocre has driven her over and over and over to do greater and greater things, and it does not satisfy. And then the other one is Tom Brady, who is maybe the greatest of all time greatest quarterback, not just greatest, greatest player of all time in football. So the greatest football player of all time, winner of six Super Bowls. Last year, his team did not win the Super Bowl. And so he said on Instagram, he, he wrote on Instagram, I still have more to prove. You know, he, he said, oh, I'm waking up every day striving for the goal. I still have more to prove. So does that mean that the seventh, eighth, or ninth 
ring would have satisfied him? You know, I don't think it would have. And so if, the, if Madonna and Tom Brady can't get there, then why would you think you could get there? You know, whatever you're trying to get, however you're trying to prove yourself to whoever it is, and a lot of times it's your parents or your brother or your sister who didn't think you could do anything, or maybe even some neighborhood friends or whatever it is, there's someone in the, in the back of your mind usually that you're trying to prove yourself to. And, and Paul is saying, give that, that is vain and fruitless and futile. It will not work. It will not work. Because self-justification is exhausting and it is wearisome and it is never ending. It is like a hamster on a treadmill getting nowhere. You know, moving its little legs as fast as it can, getting absolutely nowhere. That's not the motivation to get things done. And that's not even the worst part of self-justification. The worst part of it is that you become, if you succeed or if you think you succeed, then you become proud and contemptuous and haughty and boastful. So Jesus taught a parable in Luke 18:9, and it says that Jesus told a parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. These are people that are justifying themselves. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. This is a parable that Jesus told to these people who were doing that. And he says that these people viewed other people with contempt. Because they trusted in their own righteousness, they therefore viewed other people with contempt. And if you trust in your righteousness, you will always view people with contempt. And this is, the this is the parable. He says, two people went up to pray in the temple. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. And by the way, Pharisees were the most highly revered people in ancient Israel. They were highly respected, very devout. Tax collectors were about the worst people in ancient Israel. Okay, so these two people go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stood, he stood up, he was praying thus to himself. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. Now, I read that in a kind of a boastful voice, but that thought has occurred to me before. And I'm sure it's occurred to you too. I mean, thank God I'm not like them. Or thank God I'm not like that person. And in the back of my head, I really know why. It's because I'm pretty disciplined and I'm pretty rigorous and hardworking, and I get things done, and I show up to appointments on time, and I've been a good person. And Paul would say that, that self-justification makes you smug and self-satisfied and superior. So that's the first part of the parable. The second part of the parable is what the tax collector's thinking down on the ground. So you got the proud Pharisee standing, looking down on this person, and then the tax collector standing some distance away. So he didn't even feel like he was able to stand near the temple or the, or the Pharisee. The tax collector was unwilling to even lift up his eyes to heaven. So his head's down and he was beating his breast. You know, he was tearing out his hair and he was saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So you've got the tax collector doing all that. You've got the Pharisee doing all that. And, and guess which one Jesus approves of? Of course, it's the tax collector. And the, the, the punchline of the parable, he says, I tell you that this man went to his house justified and not the other. And to the people he was talking to, that would have been like an explosion. A moral, their moral imagination would have just exploded when they heard him say that. Because he intentionally picked the most despised person in all of Israel 
So just think about who the type of person that is the most despised person today. I'll let you figure that out, who that is. The type of person that you despise the most or that the media despises or whoever it is, this is the type of person he picked. Uh, they were greedy, they were traitors, they, you know, they, they, did, they did nothing uh, but take advantage of their own people. They were horrible people, tax collectors. And Jesus says somebody like that, crying out for mercy, is totally justified. And this other person that's done all these great things is not justified. And that leads to the second point, which is grace. The opposite of self-justification is a broken sinner, like the tax collector, hungry for justification. He was like that thief on the cross that died next to Jesus, and all the thief ever did was say, have mercy on me. He didn't do anything good his whole life. Nothing. He had been a thief to the end. He's dying right next to Jesus. He says, have mercy on me. Remember me. That's all he did. He uttered a word, and Jesus said, I guarantee you that right now when you die, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Just for uttering that word. That, he didn't even have to say anything. If he had died and he couldn't speak, and just, he could, Jesus had just seen the gesture of his soul, he still would have been justified. So that, this is what changes us, is when we realize that grace, and grace alone is what justifies us before God and other people, that God has done all the work. In verse 22, Paul says, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls. Very patient. Not just patient, but very patient. And this applies, so very patient means that if you run back to your old sins, it's called recidivism in jail. If you go back to commit another crime, you go back to jail, it's called recidivism. If you are uh, always running, if you run back to your old sin, and other people say, you know, they're hopeless, they're, there's no chance for them. They keep doing that. There's no way. Even if you keep doing that, God is very patient with us. And he just waits for you, and he waits for you, and he waits for you. Whatever that terrible habit is that you do, he just keeps waiting, and he keeps pursuing you, and pursuing you, and pursuing you, and you can never have done anything too bad that he can't make up for. That's grace. Very patient. These are people on whom his anger should fall. And his patience is just this massive, like, ocean that just swallow. Our sins are nothing compared to the patience of God. They just, they just drown in his patience. They disintegrate in his patience. We saw in Hawaii um, a, a lava. We were, we were near a volcano that was... Um, it was live, and so there was lava coming down. We saw this boy put a stick in the lava, and it just instantly evaporated. That's like the patience of God with your sin. Your sin has no chance. In Romans 2, 4, Paul said, The riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience are what lead us to changing and transforming and repenting. The only reason we ever really change is when we glimpse the wonder of God's patience for us. That's when you really change, when you see the grace of God. In fact, the only thing that can really take care of our self-justifying hard hearts, our contemptuous, superior, proud, smug hearts, is this inferno of grace. That's the only way that that kind of thing can be solved. Uh, accountability can't solve it. Strict rules can't solve it. Having a more disciplined approach to life can't solve it. Those are not bad things, but if you really want that heart to be melted, it's got to be grace. 
God's patience. Verse 23 says, uh, God does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. His glory shines his, his, like the nuclear core of the sun. As, as he just waits and dissolves our sins, his glory shines all the brighter. When you see him being so patient with someone, that's when you realize how good he is, how sweet he is, how amazing he is. And that's when you begin to change. When you see the, the riches of his glory shining bright, he says. And notice that it says that prepared in advance for glory. That means that you couldn't do anything to mess that up. Prepared in advance for glory. No matter how many times you failed, no matter how little you've achieved, no matter how bad that week has been or that day has been, prepared in advance for glory. And so you see this uh, boundless, omnipotent grace. You see the extremity of it. At the most extreme edges of this grace, you have these, um, these things, the, the people called the Gentiles. To the Jews, the Gentiles uh, were at the very extremity of life. They were the worst people in the world. And, and Paul says in verse 26, the people who are told you are not my people will be called children of the living God. The people you were told not my people, those, those are the Gentiles who are not within Israel. So the people who are told you are not my people will be called the children of the living God. And these are people that were persecuting the Israelites. These were the Egyptians like Pharaoh or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or even the Romans of Paul's day. Those were the people who were called not my people. These were the empires that constantly came wave after wave to slaughter God's people. And what Paul is saying is that God promised them, the, the Gentiles, he said, to them, I'm going to call them my people. And that is, a, um, that is a metaphor of adoption, children of the living God. He's going to adopt these Gentiles. I mean, imagine adopting somebody who, who did violence to your family, maybe even killed one of your children. And, and God says, I'm going to adopt the Gentiles, the ones who, who came after my children, who were ruthlessly aggressive against my children. I'm going to adopt them. Somebody who brought searing pain into your family's life, God says, I'm going to bring them in. The people who were told you are not my people will be called the children of the living God. Verse 26, God's going to welcome them in. I love this song. When I first became a Christian in college, there was a song by Keith Green, a Christian artist at the time. And I love this, this chorus. My son, my son, why are you striving? You can't add a single thing that's been done for you. I did it all while I was dying. Rest in faith. My peace will come to you. Because you're adopted. No matter what you've done, you're adopted into his family. So adoption is a great symbol of his grace. Maybe even better symbol of his grace is, is marriage. Um, because marriage is the exact opposite of self-justification. When you're married to someone, hopefully the dynamic of self-justification is over. You're not always having to prove yourself to the other person. And so in verse 25, Paul uses the language of marriage. Those who are not my people will now be called my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. Um, my beloved is mine and I am my beloved. That's, a, that's covenantal language like marriage. And so uh, the idea of the two becoming one flesh, which is the critical idea of marriage in the Bible, these two 
opposites, male and female, becoming one flesh, God's saying, um, that is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to marry you. I'm going to be one with you. And when you're in a marriage, um, if it's a good marriage, you're not striving to impress the other person. You're not trying to prove yourself. Uh, it's just all a mutual gift. If you're dating someone right now and you feel like you have to prove yourself to them, you have to look a certain way for them, you have to speak in a way that sounds right or be smart enough for them, uh, you know, go ahead and break up with them because that's not, you should not be married to somebody that you're trying to prove yourself to. Because marriage is the opposite of self-justification. And so in a marriage, uh, her body becomes yours and your body becomes hers. Like immediately, when you make that covenant, that you share that. You share each other's bodies completely. Um, it's just an amazing part of the, the, the wedding vows. I give, I give you my body. And in some of the, the vows, it, it even says, with my body, I worship thee. I give myself completely to you. That's what God is saying. And all of the debt, all of my debt became my wife's and all of her non-debt savings became mine. You don't, you know, you don't say, oh, well, that's yours and this is, no, that's all just lumped together. And so when God is saying, you're my people, he's saying all of mine is yours and all of yours is mine. I take all your debts. I give you all my riches. There's one house, there's one bedroom, there's one bed, there's one library, there's, there's one refrigerator. Uh, in marriage, all this attempt to prove yourself, to justify yourself is gone. It's supposed to be gone. Martin Luther said, uh, we can boast with confidence in Christ. And we can say, mine are Christ's living. Mine are Christ's doing. Mine are Christ's speaking. His suffering, his dying. Mine as much as if I had lived, done, spoken, suffered, and died as he did. All that is Christ becomes mine. He is my wisdom. He is my righteousness. He is my sanctification. He is my redemption. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Everything that Jesus has by right, he gives to you. That's grace. That's the exact opposite of self-justification. Is this grace, I will call those who are not my people, my people. I will marry them. So I began by talking about this mysterious rock, and I didn't really define it very much, but I think that the rock that Paul is talking about, verse, verse 32, they tried so hard uh, to get right with God by keeping the law, and they stumbled over the great rock in their path. So that, that's a quote from the Old Testament, and obviously the Old Testament writer did not know about Christ, but they were prophesying about something they knew not. And on this side of the crucifixion, I say that we look back and that rock was this rock in Jerusalem that's very famous, it's still there. Um, you can see it on Google if you just type it in. It's called Skull Rock. So you just type in Skull Rock Jerusalem and you see this you know, kind of gruesome thing. It's very disturbing looking rock. And we know that rock is, is Golgotha. That's the uh, Hebrew for that, Golgotha, the skull rock. And that rock, which is really big, it's maybe as tall as that church front. So on top of that rock, and um, somewhere, you know, in late spring, 33 AD, on a Friday afternoon, on that rock, uh, we believe as Christians that, that God came as a human being, and he came to that rock, and he came to that rock to be crucified in order to justify us, to take the curse of the law upon himself. And on that rock of Golgotha is where the, the son of God's 
grace shone the brightest, never brighter, as they crucified him and, and as he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so uh, at this table, uh, this is the incarnation of sheer grace. You know, God became a human being. He didn't just, God isn't just an idea. He actually became a human. He put on flesh. And not only did he become a human, he also gave us bread and wine. Because we're, we're creatures who have a hard time with ideas. Ideas only stick for a little while. They're kind of like Teflon. They kind of slide off. But, but now food and drink, they kind of stick to the soul. And so God didn't just give us words. He gave us bread and wine and grape juice. And so we're going to come and partake of this. Uh, as a way of remembering the grace of God incarnate and a little piece of bread and a little tiny cup of wine or a little tiny cup of grape juice. So we're going to come do this now together. And um, it's very important that you know that...